It's the NYMC Podcast with Jimmy and Brenton. Welcome back to the NYMC Podcast with Brenton and Jimmy. Good to be back together once more. Yeah, boy. We are here for part two of our conversation around the growing young uh, research that has uh, been released by the Full Youth Institute in the US. Fantastic conversation last episode. If you haven't listened to the last episode, you need to do that first. Stop doing this and go do that. Cut back. We're joined again by our good mate, Rowan. Good to have you back, buddy. Great to be here. Now you're a triple guest. You're a veteran. You're like the third part of the the posse. That's right. Anyway, uh, let's jump in. Let's not muck around here because we did spend a fair bit of time in last episode uh, covering a bunch of stuff. So yep. where are we starting, Jimmy? Let's kick us off, mate. Well, last time we talked about how the young, the growing young research relates to young people and their place in the church. Now we're going to look at the growing, the growing young research and the culture at large. So the church's response to culture out, outside, how it looks, the internal cultures, mm. and some of the stuff that really stands out. Because I think there's some incredible messages of hope within the within the walls of the research. One of the things that really stood out to me is that. It's saying don't don't water up, water down the gospel. Don't water down the teaching of Jesus. Take it seriously. Ron, what what did you see when you heard that? Mm. They're being really careful. Like they're being. It's mm-hmm. a fascinating approach here because they very quickly said take Jesus' message seriously, and I, I think that's because they didn't want to insert the word gospel. Which is not to say that full youth are in any way ashamed, scared, or whatever of the gospel. But what they didn't want people to do who, who are into formulate gospel claims, who are into kind of abstracting what Jesus was on about to a series of beliefs that you need to get on board with, that if you believe the right things and behave the right way, then you can belong to us. They're, they're saying, no, 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 this is about a person and following the way of Jesus. And so they've, they've picked up this language of when you read this chapter, don't just think that what you need to do is say the gospel louder or in three other dot points or in more succinct form they actually want you to get under it a little bit because we've had 20 30 how many years of slickly marketed various versions of the gospel that have been simplified in order to memorize and what we've ended up with is what what other researchers have called moralistic therapeutic deism it's a big <laughs> long word but it's something that uh, bounced around if you read uh sort of almost christian and a few of these other books kendra creasy dean was around on this it was unpacked by christian smith and the, the national survey of youth and religion that young people seem to have picked up on the, this idea that what god is interested in is them they being moral them mm-hmm. being good that God is really only around as like a cosmic psychologist for their therapeutic well-being, but fundamentally he's deistic, which means he's, he's away, he's distant. He shows up from time to time, maybe. The classic story <laughs> they said was a guy saying, what's God like? What's God like? God's like this. Like, you're walking out of class and you forgot the lunch money and you find a $10 note on the ground and you think, that's God. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going, wow, if, if that's what God's come down to, then yeah, the my message of Jesus has certainly kind of lost its clout. Like, you don't die. For that kind of stuff. You don't have uh, an entire nation turn on its heels and, and crucify you. Hmm. Um, and so they are trying to be nuanced. They are trying to be careful. They are saying this is about the gospel, but it may not be the gospel that you were brought up on yeah. or the way that you've heard it preached before. Hmm. 
So what kind of message? <laughs> what's the answer? What's the answer? Um, but they describe three shifts okay. away from, uh, and I've, hinted, I've mentioned some of them. So for some people, the gospel is a series of uh, orthodox beliefs. You've got to believe the right thing. Jesus is the son of God. Maybe even, and it's not to say that beliefs are unimportant, uh, but it's to replace this movement from believing the right stuff to following a person. The shift from this intellectual, modern kind of Christianity about holding the correct beliefs to saying, Jesus is alive in me and in culture and in our world and I'm seeking to follow his way. It's a big shift. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondary, this move from formulas to a redemptive narrative. And this has actually come out of stuff that Fuller's been doing with for some time, which is this idea of locating ourselves within the narrative which is to say if, if what the gospel is is a broad sweeping arc that moves from creation, love and concern of God through fall and so on, that when we can locate our movements within that kind of redemptive sweep. Mm. Um, but they're really big on this idea of if young people are really growing in the way of the gospel, we've got to get past this idea of kind of God loves you, you're a sinner, you're separated from God and Jesus is the bridge through to a much more nuanced way of thinking God's created the whole world. He's reconciling the whole world. God is principally a God of love who engages with where do you find yourself within that? Where do your friends find yourself within that? Not outside of that, but within that story arc. And where is this story arc going to take them next? What is their next step of the gospel for them? So it's a movement away from formulas to this sort of understanding of what are people's next step? What is people's next step as they move towards the cross? Um, it shifts away from because a formula you accept or reject mm-hmm. but when you find yourself within the story that is being written by God uh, then you get to uh, participate in it and move forward and it moves it's much more fluid and it's much more to use a, a, a cliche word much more journey mm-hmm. the last one this might be a little bit more Americana but I can't say that it's not here which is to say the gospel is about here and now not about there and then All right, the mm-hmm. gospel is not the insurance policy to get you out of hell and into heaven is that you're not just saved from something that you're saved for mm-hmm. um, that this sense that um, your reconciliation with God means that you can participate in the reconciliation that's happening in this world for you theologians out there it's much more a, a realized eschatology <laughs> like those kind of big words mm-hmm. um, uh, but that's also getting at this idea that sometimes the gospel that we've been presenting is uh, is what others have called sin management Mm-hmm. Uh, don't do this, 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 don't do this. Well, what do we do? Or you be countercultural. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so what are we saved for? What do we contribute? How do we participate in the life of God who is coming and reconciling all things unto himself? These are the kind of shifts that begin to happen. And so the gospel um, moves away from being trite, formulaic, and boiled down to a series of principles to much more larger thing that we participate in. Um, as a community and as individuals. Mm-hmm. It sounds um, uh, a whole lot more like a, a response to Jesus' invitation as we read through the Gospels. Um, it, it sounds a heck of a lot more like a response to the invitation to participate in the kingdom of God as opposed to, hey, here it is, black and white, take it or leave it. Mm. Um, although, you know, I'm sure many of us would be okay with people being, you know, um, confronted with the reality of of jesus invitation hey you you Mm. want me or not like (laughs) we Mm. can walk together or not it's Mm. up to you Uh, but that said there's a much 
bigger way uh, toward that that end game, if you like. Mm. Um, that and, and I love the the picture you painted, uh, Rowan, of of the meta narrative approach. And I've been really excited to see over the the last number of years, lots of expressions of that popping up around Australia. Mm. Um, people taking seriously, you know, that we need to actually talk about God, talk about Christ and his place in the meta narrative from the very beginning right through the end. And in fact, nothing um, sits in isolation. Mm. You know, and that was never more apparent to me. I remember I was sitting with a young person, I think I've shared this story before, uh, who actually said to me, Hey, you, you're that Christian guy, right? I was a chaplain at the time. And they said, Oh, well, come on, tell me the, the, the Jesus thing. And What's we could get on with being friends. <laughs> and, and I just, one part of me was like, I was a bit offended by that. But at the same time, I was like excited. They just asked me to share the gospel with them. So I did, as yeah. I understood it. And it was probably a pretty formulaic sort of approach. And they got to the end of that conversation. They kind of looked a bit confused and looked at me and just said straight up, Well, that's nice and all, but please tell Jesus he doesn't have to die for me. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, really, I'm fine. You know, so no, no context with which to yeah, interpret yeah. the life of Jesus. Yeah. You know, and I think um, that is so prevalent in Australia yeah. amongst young people. Yeah. Yeah. There is no concept. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can I? That, that's really interesting because I think one of the most challenging thing that sits under this approach to the gospel, which isn't necessarily explicit in the book, but it's it's quite confronting. It can be quite confronting to people when they they recognise it. What this represents is a difference is. When we approach the gospel as a narrative that we find ourselves in, then Jesus is not something to get into a person. Mm. All right? So when you, when you mm-hmm. offer someone a formulaic gospel, it starts with this sort of idea that it's outside or they are outside and they need to get in or that the gospel is outside of them and it needs to get into them. You're offering them a product or a service or a formula which they can accept or reject. And so you had this fine gentleman mm. saying... Well, thanks, he didn't really have to. It's profoundly outside of him. You know, it's, it's a part, it's, it's this optional thing that's out there. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm fine, actually. I'll um, catch you later. Mm. Um, this shift represents a, if people are genuinely caught up in the activity of God, then the evangelistic task, if we're going to call that, is identifying, naming, spotting, helping a young person to recognize the activity of God that's alive and well inside of them, that they are already found within the life of God. They're already found within the activity and the presence of God. They're just largely unconscious to it, or they wouldn't name it as such. Um, And particularly, I think, for young people, this becomes really helpful in this notion of, yeah, but I've met some Christians, and they're really bigoted, painful, (laughs) annoying, horrendous people. And I've got some people at at school who don't name Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they're really nice people. In fact, they may even be more Jesus-like than some of the grumpy people that I know. It's like, well, yeah, they're they're caught up in the life of God. They may not name him as such, um, but they... uh, the spirit is at work within them. Mm-hmm. God is alive in them. Uh, to, to put it, um, sort of, you know, using some big theological names, it's like they say that um, everyone comes to Christ as an Arminianist, but then figure out that Calvin was right all along, which is kind of say like you can't <laughs> come to Christ by choosing Him per se. But then as you start to tune your eyes in and you start to learn to recognize God and hear His voice, and you start to look back through your life and the journey that's been, and you look in the rear vision mirror, you go, Ah, oh, He's been there all the time. Yeah. So part of my life and orchestrating this and being a part of that and, and allowing this and so on. And now I find myself here. And so it allows people as they engage with the message of Jesus to be guides, to be shepherds, to be people who've seen that before and can give people hints and clues as to what kind of transpires. 
But for those people who kind of really thinking through the theological implications, it's quite challenging to say, yeah, Jesus is alive and present and active in everybody, Hmm. not just Christians. The Mm. Spirit of God is alive and active in everybody and not Mm. Christians. Jesus is working to save everybody, not just Christians. Mm. And, you know, Jesus says, he who has eyes to see, he who has ears to hear, you participate in the kingdom. And that that seems a lot more complex, I guess. I think that the, the... it's not watered down, the narrowed down gospel of like the formulas and sort of the, the easily memorable lines and process and whatever. I think, I think faith is much more complex than that. I remember I was studying under Rowan uh, last year and one of the things he got me to read was about um, salvation. And sort of, I can't remember a lot about the, the work, but it was saying, well, often we, we look at Paul as our model of mm-hmm. salvation. So Paul got saved, got knocked off his donkey, he heard, heard Jesus and that was it transformed life bang but then the question was well, when did the disciples become christians <laughs> was it was it before they ran away or after mm-hmm. was it before they denied jesus or after was it when they were given a new like it's sort of this gradual journey that suddenly they're like oh no i'm a christian now mm-hmm. um and so it was much much more complex and so you look at the scriptures you look at something like john so john the baptist gets all excited jesus is around and the question that Jesus asks the people who come to him is, what do you want? Mm. Like, he invites them into to following him and working out what this is. But the same Jesus who does that also says, unless you pick up the cross mm. and deny yourself, you cannot follow me. And so you've got Jesus both inviting and also sort of saying, it's a, it's a yes or no question. Mm. <laughs> like, either you pick up your cross and follow me or you don't. Mm. What, do you, what do we do with that? Mm. So that is a good example of a, a kind of a yes and a no moment, but it's not a propositional moment. It's very challenging mm. to disciples who had been with him for a number of years and will continue to be with him for a number of years. So it's almost like a calling to follow Christ in a new way. Yeah. So now we're kind of leaving the research here and we're chatting generally, which is absolutely fine. It, it represents then that yeah, conversion for the disciples was... A process made up of moments. Now, like again, if we're going to follow the, the, the Bible story on this one, if you were to ask where were the disciples interacting with the Holy Spirit, well, if you follow it through the Gospels and particularly in Luke, you get that moment in, or in John, sorry, in the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for them and then breathes over them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then at Ascension, says, Now wait for me because the Holy Spirit's coming. <laughs> and then at Pentecost, they're filled with the Spirit. And then, I think it's John and Peter get arrested, sent to jail, get busted out, go back to the praying disciples, and they pray, Right, this is really tricky. We're getting thrown into jail for our time with Jesus. So they pray, Jesus, please empower us. And they get filled with the Spirit again. You know, So they, what, when was their conversion? Well, at any point along the way. And it got reinforced and reinvigorated. And they came to know Jesus in increasingly new and different ways time and time and time again. And I don't think there's any reason to think that that's not the normal Christian life. Mm. Where we're continually re-meeting and re-meeting and re-meeting Jesus. We're continually being converted through a series of conversions. And the difference between the first one and subsequent ones is it's the first one um, and then subsequent and we don't have a box for it the first time round, but the second time we ought to and we don't need to fear that yeah. uh, in that sense and so yeah the gospel then doesn't become this singular moment that we accept or reject um, but it's a recognition that we've been caught up in, in this river that's been flowing for a long time and for a while there we were swimming upstream and trying to go against it and at some point we turned around and went all right
I'm actually found in the flow. Yeah. And uh, let's see where this is going. Yeah, I reckon that's a great example, uh, just again coming back to the research of the difference between um, having a faith that is, um, that is, is honest mm. but not necessarily always certain. Like mm. there, there is a, a strength in our, in our understanding of our discovery as it occurs, but it doesn't mean we won't from time to time uh, slip in and out of our our surety of what we have currently learnt or what mm. we previously learnt. Mm. Uh, because if we are growing, then our faith shape should change because mm. we've changed. Mm. Otherwise, we're not growing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so therefore, there is this tension that we constantly manage. And that was one of the things that uh, that came through strongly in the research. Yeah. yeah. Do you want yeah. to talk a bit more about that? Yeah. That, well, so one of the things that was quite um, profound in this, in this, this chapter on the Gospel was that um, honesty became one of the abiding things that they found was correlated with more aspects of what you might call behavioural spiritual health, the classic indicators that pastors and youth pastors might look for than anything else. So if a young person was found to be um, or experiencing themselves as able to be totally honest before God and before their community about where they are at, they're allowed to be in process and on a journey, and didn't feel like they had to be holier than thou or super spiritual or complete or anything like that, it was highly correlated with them being more comfortable sharing their faith and reading the Bible and attending worship and all these other things. And part of the assumption around that was because they weren't sharing their faith as a formula. Mm -hmm. They didn't feel like they had to understand the formula in order to pass it on. They felt like they were able to be honest before God, and so they were helping their friends to be honest before God. Yeah. <laughs> Doing what, you know, do what I do in, as I follow Jesus kind mm-hmm. of thing, which is not pretend to be holier than thou like I'm pretending to be holier than thou. Mm-hmm. It's I'm genuinely honest. So um, it's quite this classic moment that you have of um, if you're talking to a young person and they're telling you about this great thing that they're really struggling with, and if you've ever asked the question, like, um, have, you, have you been able to, like, pray about this and what I mean by that is simply like talk with God about this like don't pray to solve it you know just like like it's almost like fess up to God like just like and they're kind of like oh I couldn't do that yeah <laughs> you know that'd be worse than telling mom <laughs> <laughs> you know like no sense that God's already kind of got it sussed out but yeah. um, that's that that's that thing that's that started to become navigated it's like yeah, I've got a problem, and God and I are a we, and we're sorting through that. And I do that with you as pastor and you as friends and some of my friends who don't think Jesus is a particularly good resource to, to do me this kind of stuff with. Well, I share that with them anyway because I'm just being honest in my life before others and God. Mm. I was really struck. Um, this year we um, confirmed a young guy who's 15, and this time last year we were having lots of chats about the fact that he was just angry with God. Mm. Didn't want to be, didn't want to be around God. He felt like a hypocrite. He saw his parents' faith and he saw his faith and just felt ashamed of it. And um, one of the things I did with him, with you know, I talked with a bunch of people. I think Rowan was one of them, was to get him a little notepad. Mm. Um, and when he was angry with God, I just said, "Just write down, dear God, I'm angry with you. Mm. Love so and so. Love kisses. Yep. That's <laughs> it." And that was really powerful for him because right. suddenly God didn't become this other. He became part of his anger. And suddenly it was a, a conversation with God rather than a conversation to God mm-hmm. that God was already a part of his anger anyway. 
And so it was really beautiful him speaking about this, that his conversion and his, his faith didn't come about through sort of rejecting all doubt and sort of rejecting his anger and rejecting all that. It was working through that and talking to God about that. And that's yeah. started from him just going, God, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. I'm yeah. angry. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's such a great example. And in terms of where we started MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, that's that deism bit that you're overcoming. Yeah. So there's this overarching sense in young people that God's a million miles away. Occasionally he might show up from time to time, but I've never experienced him or something like that's that. That's right. And, and, and so their, their prayers reflect that kind of worldview. Yeah. Dear God, you know, if I happen to get your attention at some point, you could possibly maybe, that'd be great, thanks. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. As opposed to, I'm, I'm really annoyed here, God. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm you know... And because there seems to be an assumption in young people that if they're angry with God, then ang- God's angry with them that they're angry with him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, yeah, what you invited that, that young person to do is, is, is a tremendous way of bridging that. And I think the other thing is that when we, when we treat God like that, that we can't be honest with him, we actually betray our theology anyway. Mm. Because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And so there's no real qualms in asking really good questions. Like, if we believe that Jesus is the truth, then at the end of all our questions, we should find him. Mm. So we, I remember when we first started our youth ministry out west, we got a big sign that just said, challenge everything. Mm. And they did. And they asked good questions. And they weren't, they weren't solid put together questions. They were messy questions. Mm. But they were questions that they felt they could ask. Mm. And that was really important for their faith because they believed that Jesus is the truth. And so... No matter how difficult the questions, no matter how messy the questions, if we ask good questions and at the end of them we search for the truth, that's where Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. And it, it connects as well to one of the others. Um, it, it's definitely inherent in this research and it's something that's become an increasing priority for me has been this area. And this, this also leans a bit into um, the way... Growing Young talks about uh, what it calls being the best neighbours, which is really seeking that, that kind of the way church engages and relates to culture. Um, is this? It talks a lot about this, the difference between destination and journey and that um, we can present both a gospel and uh, a form of what Christianity is about in terms of the destinations quite often. So you know, like a very compelling sermon about humility or forgiveness really kind of talks about the destination. When someone is forgiven, this has happened. And when someone is forgiven, this results from it. So you're kind of like, when you've reached the destination of forgiveness, this is what transpires. When you've reached the destination of salvation, this is what transpires. Which might betray the fact that it can take a while Mm. to kind of get there. And if you only ever preach or talk or create a kind of a worldview that Christianity is a series of perfectly magnificent, wonderful things that you would reach at destination, it really... It's terribly discouraging if you're just along the way, you know? <laughs> or if you've just gotten past an incredible source of pain where forgiveness is just not, you know, uh, available to you just yet. So to allow people to be in process, to to allow people to go, I'm here. It's not clean. There is another step. There is. Uh, is it's such a blessing to them. And it, again, it, it redeems the gospel from being a series of formulas, a series of destination points, to the blessing of companionship along the way um, towards a life that ultimately is more whole. Um, but takes steps to get there. Um, you know, Thankfully, Jesus said that this is about little faith. 
um, and, and not, not lots of faith. Mm. Um, but in this sense of be, being the best neighbours as well, this sense of destination and journey comes out really strongly because when we're in culture, there's some, there's some big dicey issues that are floating around at yeah. the moment. You know, um, and certainly the, the you know the situation in America is really pointed uh, or you know placed under a microscope. What you know in, in biblical terms, what do you what do you think about the widow and the alien? <laughs> yeah. We use the word immigrant, you yeah. know, uh, immigration, um, and same sex sex marriage has been really an LGBTI plus 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 plus, um, and gender diffusion and all sorts of stuff. And these are now um, public issues. They're right in the public sphere. Um, and uh, our governments are making decisions upon the, you know, the, the domains which churches once thought, we do the moral stuff, mm. you know, we do the moral police, but this is, this is now out there and for some reason we're legislating around highly kind of moral issues, or for good reasons I guess we're moral, uh, legislating around. So these things are all in the public square. And what our Growing Young Research found is that when churches approach these sometimes diabolical issues as if they're closed, mm-hmm. as if the Bible's really clear on this, and there are really only you know there are two types of, of people in relation to the Bible in this particular issue, you know the ones who get it right and the ones who get it wrong, you know mm-hmm. the ones who read their Bibles and the ones that don't, or the ones that this or the ones that that. Now, as soon as growing young found really clearly that as soon as you engage in these issues by presenting them as closed, as the experts have already sorted it out, let me explain it to you. Your job is to remember it and then get on board with it. It was, I don't know if I can say devastating, mm-hmm. um, but they, they generally found that, that that just wasn't present amongst mm-hmm. churches that were growing young. And at the same time, these people had robust theology. So mm. you can't do this mm. whole, oh, they're just being wishy-washy. Oh, mm. they're just being you know, a bit liberal or whatever. They're actually being really careful. The leaders themselves had nuanced and convictional positions, but allowed their community dialogue, yeah. conversation. You know, If they were to do a sermon series on it, it wasn't to resolve and close down the issue. It was to open it up and to provide... Uh, young people with the tools of thinking and engaging and maybe even taking their simplistic ideas and making them more complex and yeah. making it worse. And, <laughs> yeah. and and if you think that's all there is to it, then maybe you also need to consider. Um, and it again, they said this in kind of velvet ways, but there, there was a pretty decent slap to kind of say, when you shut this down, when you preach as if it's resolved, when you sort of say there's, the, there's my way or the highway on particular matters, it's highly problematic mm. for, for young people who may yet end up reaching the same convictional conclusion as you eventually, but it's a process. It takes some time, and they're not going to get there the way yesteryear used to get there, which was by allowing the experts to sort it out, remembering their thingos, and then living it out. They have to nut it out themselves, which kind of takes us all, loops us all the way back around to this sense of, yeah, authority is different. Yeah. amongst young people take me seriously I need to I need to do this journey with you but by myself yeah, yeah. Um, so they were just again help just to clarify in growing young did we see that it was affirmed it's okay to hold a position on a particular issue but in actual fact what we're wanting to do is to help young people explore that fully for themselves is that am I yeah misquoting yeah that? a way of looking at it is their radar is open to say, uh, is this a dialogue 
or is this finished? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and that's what they pick up on. And if it's if it's finished and if it's concluded, which is not to say, uh, and this is this is why there's there's nuance here. It's not to say, um, like their their finding was that they 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 spoke of. Uh, finding numerous young people who remain at growing young churches despite holding different beliefs because that was okay. (laughs) Because diversity was assumed. Um, And so uh, they said somewhere else, um, when churches are closed to dialogue, young people look elsewhere for a more palatable conversation, not conclusion. Mm -hmm. They're not looking for just a conclusion that suits them. They're looking for conversation. They're looking around to be able to be engaged by issues that matter to them and then be involved in dialogue. But if it's closed, then there's nothing to do around here, which returns us to this idea of faith as a journey. I need communities that can help go with me, Mm. not present a destination Mm. that then becomes accept or reject, in or out, believe the right stuff, behave the right way, and you can join us, as opposed to we will join you as you sort this stuff out, you belong first. You don't have to look very far in terms of... um uh, context beyond the faith a faith community or beyond the church to recognise that that's actually just the way it happens in every other sphere of society. <laughs> yeah. you know? And I'm not uh, I'm not advocating that um, you know that the destination doesn't matter. I think I, I think my personally I think there's some uh, some importance about at least being able to articulate why I think that matters. You know, mm. um, but to to shut it down to the point where there isn't room for an alternative viewpoint on that. Mm. is problematic we uh, my context is schools ministry so if i ever uh, was so bold in the context of any school be it a, a faith-based school or a, or a government school uh, to proclaim a, a truth per se that wasn't open for exploration uh, it would be curtains get out of mm. there we, we just not long ago did uh, five days in a school um, exploring the relationship between faith and science and of course, some of the big ticket items in that, mm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, as you can imagine, came up without any shadow of a doubt. And, and our response needed to be, look, it's important that you understand that even amongst Christians, there are a multitude of views yeah. on these issues. Mm. Okay, Where we've landed for this reason is, mm. but we are really interested in knowing what you think. Mm. You know, talk to us about that. Let's hear. Let's listen. Uh, let's enter this with a with the preparedness to be able to say, you know what? I think I might be wrong, yeah. And, and I and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So what this research is not saying is that young people at growing churches are really appreciative of their leaders who are completely wishy washy and out to sea <laughs> on all sorts of issues. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah. no, no, they're profoundly convictional people yeah. who let me figure this out. Yeah. Who go with me on a journey, and that's that that's balance good. of. Highly convictional leadership who know what they stand for and what they stand for is your right to participate in figuring this out. Um, and so the, um, the the kind of words that young people use is inclusive, open, accepting, hospitable, positive, uh, positive posture towards culture. Um, they were eight times more likely to mention diversity of beliefs than the similarities of beliefs. Mm. So this is a great place because there's lots of different things going on here, but we get along. Yeah, we, you know, and that's the kind of language that they're using. I think I mean a couple of things stick out to me. One is that's that's what the gospel should do. Like mm. you're just in this room, we all come from very different backgrounds, mm. like all very different faith backgrounds, all different very different thoughts, but we're all here because we love Jesus and we've been loved by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's why we're all here. And so that's at work. 
That's what our churches should look like. Mm. Um, the fact that we can have very different beliefs about things. There's a lot of open-handed issues that we can have great conversations about, but we're all, we're all united. Mm. We're all, we're all, and I think, you know, that should, be, that should be the same with our interactions out there. Like, I think what you were talking about is that we don't want wishy-washy... We're not, they're not looking for wishy-washy people. They're looking for people with deep conviction. If I ever met a monk like a Buddhist monk, <laughs> I want to meet like a proper one. Yeah. I want to meet mm-hmm. one with like the robes and like <laughs> who's all in. Mm-hmm. I don't want to meet someone who sort of talks about karma but can't really like adhere to it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to someone who's all in, mm-hmm. but I want to have a conversation with them. I was having a, a conversation with a friend of mine after the recent election in America. So she's, she's black. She's got ties with the LGBTI community in America and was just distraught um, and really struggling. And one of the things that she was talking about is that I want to be able to understand people. I want to be able to understand where people are coming from who have different perspectives than mine, but I don't know how to sit with them and hear it and feel so much rage and anger inside me and just sit there. And one of the things that, that we got around to talking about is I said that, you know, like if I, I, the convictional side of me is that I'm a Christian. I love Jesus more than anything in this world. Like, you don't understand me unless you understand that. But something that I've been really trying to do is ask good questions. Mm. Is, is come alongside people and ask good questions. That doesn't mean betraying what I believe. Mm. doesn't mean betraying what I think. It just means that I want to understand people. Mm. I think that's often what people are looking for. They want to be understood. They want to, want to be able to say, that's, that's my, this is my point of view. <laughs> And so often we close the conversation down and say, this is what I think, end of. And we never ask good questions and we never listen. I don't know if you've um, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. Mm. He's got a great chapter on listening because most of us are really bad listeners. Mm. I remember I skipped the chapter and then got convicted about the fact that I didn't want to listen to people so much that I didn't even read the chapter about <laughs> listening. I was like, oh, this is something that I really need to think about. Yeah. We don't listen very well. Yeah. And that's that's a cause for concern. Yeah. Yeah. So what can we do? I mean, we're, we're sort of coming to the end of our time. You know, if we're going to move toward uh, any sense of um, applying some of the learning from the growing young research that is going to be helpful, that is going to help our churches to, to continue to engage young people and see them flourish and therefore to see our churches flourish, what do we do? What do we do with all this amazing information that we now have at our fingertips? There's, oh, there's so many one things. Here's ten. Here's one. Um, what growing young is is one of the things that it's saying is that historically something that we're recovering from is that default church is adult church, and when you change it slightly, then it might become youth church. Right. So yeah. the default setting, the real deal, um, when young people grow up, they do adult church, which means the kinds of things that baby boomers are used to and so on. And then occasionally we insert a children's message or I oh, will let young people do a Bible reading or this or that. But fundamentally that creates this picture that there's, there's this is the way we do it. And we'll try and find a little moments and inroads where youth can become a part of what we do. And growing young are saying to, to church, if you want to grow young and not grow older, then the default needs to change. Mm. It's not adult church where you try and make little ad breaks for kids and young people and family to you know, mm. walk away kind of chuffed because they read the Bible or something like that. It's that 
all of church is youth ministry mm-hmm. uh, and not just worship you know like the whole way we function when they when they say prioritize every part of church around young people because when you prioritize young people everybody grows mm-hmm. big finding of theirs like wow. when, when, when you place that in the center everybody grows in faith all right that the, the arrow goes both ways now what you do get is some people who are grumpy because it's not stylistically what they were after all right um, but if and that becomes the wrestling point for people um, but fundamentally they, they never found that a church that was growing young the old people were sitting around going we're not being fed anymore mm. right but when you find churches growing old the young people aren't being fed mm. so if you want to win-win then we need to wrestle away this sort of default setting that goes adult church first with you know um, concessions for young people you actually flip that entirely around and go what what happens when we prioritize that 15 to 30 year old age group because the big finding is that, that when you prioritize that it, it bleeds it trickles down and it bleeds up or however you want to kind of metaphor it um, but the the young people lean up into that age group saying i want to become like because they're kind of reachable and the adults become enthused um, by these right. young people yeah. you know one of the key stories in there one of the turning points for a congregation was when um, in a in a church service um, they collectively were gathering up prayers and then the pastor went you know Joey Michelle Robert and Julie can you pray for these for us and they were all like 18 19 16 and they came up and they prayed their natural way of praying mm. and all the adults went holy moly what just <laughs> happened then yeah. you know mm. they weren't reciting that was an impassioned prayer like I've never felt before. And that congregation, if they said when they interviewed all the adults in that congregation, they all said that moment. That was the mm-hmm. moment where this clunk That's thing so cool. went for the adults. Wow. And they went, these, yeah, we want church like that. We want to do worship like that. We want to feel as fervently about our community as, as that. Um, and so that was, that was a big thing for me to kind of get that sense of perspective of going, well, what? If we were to change, when we say church, everything that we do as a gathered community, from the ministries that we're involved in to the worship that we gather for and all that kind of stuff, um, if that was to become, for use of a better word, youth church, growing young church, uh, that we make concessions to adults for, mm-hmm. um, what might transpire? And just by the way, when they asked leaders, volunteers and pastors, what do you see as being the greatest impediment for your church towards continuing to growing young? uh, 37 to 40% of people said, our congregation. (laughs) So not things out there, not stuff out of our control, not some kind of cultural milieu that we just can't kind of shake off. Our people, Mm. our thing, the thing that we're a part of is... Nothing else got that larger percentage. The greatest percentage problem was simply our people, mm. you know, who the, the community dynamics of which we are a part. So in that sense, that's kind of like really terrible and the greatest news ever, mm. that mm. the kind of changes that we can make, you know, that your greatest impediment to some extent is entirely in your control, which is an overstated mm. statement, but it's not something that's outside of your control. It's not uh, impossible for you. I remember when Matt Chandler took over his church over in Texas was filled with 60, 70, 80 year olds. And one of the things he said to them is, look, we're, we're gonna be moving in a new direction. We're gonna be focusing on 15 to 30 year olds. We're gonna be looking at young families. And you, you guys have got an option. Either you, you can 
hated <laughs> and look to go to a new church where you can discuss with other people your own age about the glory days that you used to have when you were 15 and 30. Ouch. Or you can, or you can, get, or you can get on mission. Or you can get on mission. Or you can see what God's doing here and invest in the lives of this generation and influence people for the gospel for generations to come. And not very many people left because that's, that's a massive... That's a massive invitation. Yeah. 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 It's, it's similar, I guess, in some ways, um, hearing you say that, Rowan, I think of communities that have been formed with that as a value, that, that dynamic you described as a core value. Um, uh, I've had conversations over the years um, with guys from Soul Survivor in Watford in the UK, um, you know, Mike Pilavachi mm. and Andy Croft and co, and, and they planted a church with a, with a view to engaging young people in exactly the way you've described. And of course, as that developed over time and older people were saying, hey, this is a little church we want to be a part of, <laughs> um, the, the response was, hey, we would love to have you as a part of our community. You know, the, the, the younger amongst us need people like you to be investing, but you need to know that we're actually going to do it this way. And if you do come and get involved, it's unlikely we're ever going to really hit well the demographic in comparison to other perhaps churches where you could get that done. Mm. You're very, very welcome. We would love you to be here. We need you. You know, we would, we would love your involvement, but you need to know this is how it's going to be. And, uh, and it's just had a, a really, it's not perfect, and they would be the first to say that, but over the years it's had a steady pattern of growth. Um, to the point where they're, you know, they're experiencing some quite remarkable things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I, I see what you've just described happening in different parts of the church around the world, and and it kind of the penny drops. It's like ah, oh, of course, you know, <laughs> it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not it's not about building a youth church. It, it's actually about finding ways for that intergenerational um, uh, coexistence, I suppose that allows churches to make space for young people uh, in a way that the research would describe. Even if I was to say a final point on this, I think we've been watching around the globe and within Australia what we might call a bunningsization of young adult church Mm. where um, there's gatherings and cohorts of young adults who are now mobile, who are able to move, gathering together and forming kind of young adult communities and gathering around great charismatic um, preachers and speakers who are kind of doing great things. But uh, there weren't too many of those in the growing young uh, cohort because the, the only thing they can kind of do is grow upwards mm. from there. You know, there, there's, there's this attractional impulse. And there's actually a deep concern amongst the research community that while um, they represent the greatest numeric growth in terms of speed of, of young and young adult communities, there's no research around that says they are long-term effective. Mm-hmm. Without this five-one-five intergenerational, large, small, um, learning to take responsibility for, as well as having others responsible for you, like there's, there's no evidence that says when you create age-segregated demographic churches that independently function, the next question is what happens tomorrow, yeah, and the year after, and the year after, and when they marry, and when they have kids, and then you need a Sunday school and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Pretty soon you're going to be back to where do we go from here? And and, and I think that's one of the great challenges and one of the great um, great challenges to us is is not to segregate but to remain connected but then there's one of these great blessings that if you're in a tiny church or if you're in a small church or if you're in a backwards church 
that is the kind of foundation you want to build on. That's exactly the kind of fertile environment that you're filled with people that don't look like young people. They're the kind of people that young people need. They've got lots of peers. They don't have lots of adults. Mm-hmm. To me, bring this to a close. Um, I remember in YMZ15 listening to Brad Griffin, who's part of the Fuller Youth Institute research team, uh, part of Sticky Faith, and he was sharing a story about a young person who left the church. And their comment was, well, when all my friends left, I left as well. Mm-hmm. The challenge, I think, that the growing young research lives, gives us is that that can't be the case. The only communities young people can't have can't just be the youth ministry. It needs to be the church. Mm-hmm. It needs to be the entire community of people from youngsters to the oldies, mm. the Sues who plays golf for their 70s, <laughs> to the hip young youth pastors, to the younger families, to those in their 50s and 60s who are looking at retiring. Mm. It's everyone together on mission, living the gospel together. Mm. That's great. Good on you guys. Look, this has been a, quite a remarkable chat. Um, we probably could have dedicated six months to this subject, but anyway, <laughs> time doesn't permit otherwise. Ron, we want to say thanks, mate, for hanging out for the last couple of episodes. It's been wonderful having you a part of that. Uh, you're listening to the NYMC podcast, and uh, if you'd like to continue in the conversation, as always, the invitation is there. Jump onto our social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Post a question, suggest an episode, uh, whatever it is you would like to do. If you want to find out a bit about more about NYMC and the upcoming conference, October 19. 11 2017 at SeaWorld on the Gold Coast. Booyah. All a little bit excited about that. Uh, then go I'm to nymc.org.au so is the place for that information. Uh, we look forward to catching up with you next time. Thanks for listening.